0: Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast, produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zelinsky. Now, I want to comment on Jonah before I jump into Obadiah. There's, has anybody here never heard of the prophet Jonah? Right? Everybody knows the story of Jonah and the? Whale. The whale, the big fish, whatever. We all know that. That's not an excuse to not read it. Right. OK? Just because you know it doesn't mean you don't have to read it. Read it anyway. It's a short one. You could read it a couple times. And uh, there, did you know there's a Jonah-like news story recently? Yeah, if you don't look that up, and I'm sure you'll, you'll hear more about it next week, but real people get swallowed by real big fish. Um, <laughs> it happens. So anyway, Obadiah. We're in Obadiah. Wasn't it great to just have one chapter? Did you know that Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament? Out of all 39, it's the smallest one. So you'll never have an Old Testament book to read that's that short again. Enjoy it. We also uh, know that uh, Obadiah is the only one of the 12, the 12 minor prophets, that is not quoted in the New Testament. Not quoted at all. Now, that doesn't mean that the message of Obadiah is absent from the New Testament. In fact, you're going to see this morning that there is a lot of Uh, playing off of Obadiah's message and a lot of those things that we see throughout the New Testament, as well as what Jesus talked about and certain things in Jesus's life uh, that are very directly related to what Obadiah talked about in his prophecy. One thing we don't know about Obadiah is who he was. There are 13 people in the Old Testament named Obadiah. He's one of them we have nothing conclusive to know if he's the same person as any of the other 12 that are mentioned by the same name. And so usually if we don't know and don't have any real degree of certainty, we just accept that and say, we don't know who this guy was, except his name was Obadiah. Right. Maybe he was one of those other people, but we can't, we can't go there. And we need to do that with scripture. If we don't know something in scripture, we need to be upfront about that and just say, you know, we don't know because there's not enough to, to grasp that and ultimately it doesn't matter because we do know that Obadiah was a prophet who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say what he said and to write what was written and we can take this message to heart as from God, relevant for us. Now, what was Obadiah primarily about? Anybody want to throw that out there? What? Oh, you're cheating. What's that? Yeah, Esau's people, which is a nation known as Edom. It's a prophecy against the nation of Edom. He's telling them that they are going to be judged by God in a very disastrous manner, like completely annihilated by God in judgment for what they've done. Now, Edom is the people of Esau you know who Esau was? Jacob's brother, right? You know, we got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was actually the oldest brother. He, I mean, they were twins, but he came out first. And then Jacob was not a very high character guy. Okay to put it nicely. And he stole his brother's blessing. He stole his brother's birthright by lying and deceiving his father. And, uh, and then when his brother wanted to kill him, go figure, he ran away. And he hid. For, he was gone for a long time. And he waited until he felt like, you know, uh, he felt like, you know, God told him that, his, you know, it's okay, you can go back, your brother won't kill you. He was still terrified even though God told him that. But he gets back, they, they reconcile. Esau says, you know what, God has blessed me too. Don't worry about it, we're good. So they, they reconciled. But there's also a national history because Jacob is the one that God renamed Israel and he had 12 sons and that's where we get the 12 tribes from. But Esau also developed into a people group. And so you have the nation of Edom, which is Esau and his descendants, and then the nation of Israel, which is Jacob and his descendants. They had a long history, like you would suspect, with brothers. Anybody had a brother? <laughs> any, any guys that had brothers? You, you know how brothers can be, right? Sisters are the same way. We're not going to let you off the hook. Sisters can maybe even be worse, just saying. But these brothers, right, when Israel came out of Egypt from the exodus... They'd been slaves for 400 years. They'd been mistreated, abused, and all this. And they're finally getting back to the land God had given them. And they get ready to go through Edom's territory. And they say, hey, can we pass through? Edom, like a good brother, said, no, go around us. Refused to let Israel come through their land. And then once Israel gets there, they have a lot of different conflicts. Sometimes they're allies in war together. Sometimes they're at war with each other just back and forth as a sibling rivalry you would expect. But Edom goes too far. Ultimately, they're going to be punished by God for really kicking Israel when they were down. Okay, at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been exiled by Assyria. And the southern kingdom of Judah is concerned about Babylon coming over. Really, the whole region was concerned about Babylon and what they were becoming and what they would do. And so in 593 BC, the region all got together and had sort of an alliance meeting discussing how they were going to deal with Babylon if they ever came over this way. Edom came to the meeting and said, Judah, we're with you. We're in this fight against Babylon. We don't want to see them get a foothold here. We've got your back. That's all good. About 10 years later or so, uh, not quite 10 years later, five or six years later, Babylon shows up. They start their siege against Jerusalem. Ultimately, in 586, they completely annihilate Jerusalem, burn down the temple, destroy everything, exile the people. And what did Edom do? Edom jumped in on it. They plundered them, they pillaged them, they captured refugees that were fleeing and sold them as slaves, profiting from it. They completely turned their back on someone they pretended to be allies with and they did that to their own kin. I mean, this is their family and not only that, but these are the people that are in covenant relationship with God. God doesn't take too kindly to people messing with his covenant people. And so that's what this whole thing came about because of. And there are several places in uh, Psalm 137, Lamentations chapter 4, Ezekiel chapters 24 or 25 and 35, all reference Edom jumping into the fray with Babylon and taking advantage of Judah when they're being destroyed, just adding insult to injury. It was a horrible thing for them to do, but especially to do to their own, their own people, their own family, their own brother was not going to happen. So there's this prophecy of their destruction in the first portion of Obadiah. The second portion is all of the reason why it was going to happen. And in the beginning of Malachi, when we get there, the first few verses of Malachi actually talk about Jacob and Esau and how God has utterly destroyed Esau and his people. In fulfillment of Obadiah's prophecy of the judgment that would come, the last kind of neo-Babylonian king in 553 BC, his name was Nabonidus, came in and completely leveled Edom. God's word comes to pass. If God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Edom was told that they would be judged for what they did to God's people, and they were. Obadiah uses a lot of wordplay, a lot of uh, words that sound the same, things we miss out in English because just in translation, you don't get that stuff. So we miss out on it. Some of the things we can pick up on, there's a lot of irony. Uh, God, for whatever reason, he, he uses a lot of irony in scripture, especially in some of the prophetic things. For instance, you know now the story of, es- of Edom and how they pretended to be allies and then they turned against them. Well, if, you've, if you're in Obadiah, look at verse 7. This is the prophecy against Edom. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Isn't that ironic? Exactly what they did to Judah is what's going to happen to them. Their allies will turn their backs on them and completely Abandon them, if not jump in the fray with them. That's what happens when you do that to God's people. So now that you kind of know the story of Esau and, and Jacob and Edom and Israel, the two people that came, and how that played out, what does that have to do with us? Right? I mean, because it's easy for us to read something like this that's not even to or about God's people, it's about their enemies. And, there, you know, it's not quoted in the New Testament. There's no prophecies about Jesus in uh, Obadiah. And it's easy for us to just read this and say, what in the world does this have to do with me and my life as a Christian in 21st century United States of America in uh, good old Gwinnett County, Georgia? What's this got to do with me? Well, that's the first place we have to start. Is number one, you have to believe that Obadiah is for you. I mean, when you sit down to this, you have to come to the word of God recognizing this is the word of God, and it's relevant for me. It makes sense to me. It it speaks to my life in Christ. You may not know how, you may not understand it, but you've got to be committed in your understanding that that's what it is. There are actually two places we're going to look at in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, whatever was written in former days, he's speaking about the Old Testament. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that means that Obadiah was written for your instruction. Okay, it wasn't written to you, but it was written for your instruction, that you could be encouraged and that you could have hope. So when you sit down to read Obadiah, know that it's to instruct you, to encourage you, and to give you hope. And you may be sitting there wondering, how in the world does Obadiah do that? We'll get there. But secondly, what we can know about Obadiah is that it's scripture. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all scripture, and when he says this, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So he's referring primarily to the Old Testament. And he says, all scripture is breathed out by God that means Obadiah was breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You know, Obadiah, reading Obadiah and studying it and gaining the gist of it for your life can train you in righteousness? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You've got to know that Obadiah is for you. This word of God is for you today It fits your life. And so come to this word with open ears, with open eyes, listening for what God is going to say, seeing what God is doing, and what God would do in you. That's step one. We've got to come to the table ready to eat. Secondly, you need to know that vengeance is not for you. Okay, This is the primary message of Obadiah, I believe. Vengeance is not for you. How many people have been wronged in some form or fashion in their life? Right? If we're being honest, everybody could probably raise both hands and more because people are people and we get wronged, we get mistreated. We, we are often uh, in those situations. What's our first natural inclination is to defend ourselves, to stand up for ourselves, to make sure people know how we were right, how we were mistreated, and how justice should be done, and they should get what they deserve. That's what we want to do. That's exactly what we shouldn't do. Because vengeance is not for us. What we see here as we look at Obadiah and the message that comes is a prophecy that God will deal with those who mistreat his people. This is a prophetic word. And something we have to understand about Old Testament prophecy is uh, something referred to as telescoping, right? You all know what a telescope is, something that stretches out. Well, a lot of times prophecies have both an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And typically the prophets couldn't see the distance between those two things. This is the best way of thinking about it. Imagine you're looking at a mountain range, okay? And you see one peak, here closer to you. And then there's another peak over here behind it. If you're looking straight at these two peaks, you can't gauge the distance between them, right? All you see is one peak behind another peak with really very little depth perception. And, but when you turn sideways, you can see whether it's close, whether it's farther away, things of that nature. And that's the way the Old Testament prophets were looking at things. They don't see the distance. And so you see both there's an immediate fulfillment with Edom and their destruction and that came. But then there's also where he shifts from just talking about Edom to all the nations, and then he gets into the day of the Lord, which is when Jesus will come back and dealing with the way it's gonna be in the end. And it's not that it's either or, it's both. He's talking about both. We see that in a lot of prophecy. Think of the virgin birth. Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would be with child and give birth, and he actually gave some indications of when that would happen, and it would be within two years of him giving that prophecy. That happened. Isaiah's wife was the young maid, and she got pregnant. She had a child. It fulfilled the prophecies that were related, but we know that was also pointing to a true virgin birth that would be Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we don't say, well, he was only talking about the immediate or he was only talking about Jesus. He was saying both. He didn't grasp that, but God was speaking about it. The same with David, told that a son of his would sit on his throne and build a house for God. Well, who was that about? Solomon. Solomon sat on his throne. Solomon built the temple. Who was it ultimately about? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is still sitting on the throne of David, ruling over God's people, and Jesus is building a house for God's name, because who is the temple now? We are. And Jesus is building us up into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit as living stones. That's what scripture says. Jesus is building the temple even now. So when people start saying, oh, there's going to be a rebuilt temple in the last day, say, you're right, Jesus started it a long time ago. This is the only temple that the scripture talks about going forward is the temple of God's people. Jesus has already started it, he's still building it. And we are that temple. Scripture says it real clear. But we also see it in Matthew 24. We mentioned that a week or two ago, that uh, where. Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and wiped it out. Jesus was talking in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Mark, Jesus was talking about what would happen to Jerusalem in AD 70 and it happened. But like any prophet, Jesus was also speaking about the ultimate fulfillment in the last days. It's not an either or, it's both. So we can comfortably see that. But when we read through Obadiah and what he's saying about Edom and how God judged them for dealing with his covenant people, well, who are God's covenant people now? Those in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you can read this and know that what God did to Edom is what he's going to do to those who persecute and mistreat you. Justice will come. You don't have to take vengeance for yourself. You can be freed to let God deal with his people because when he comes back, that's exactly what he's gonna do, right? We tend to think just like they did. They like to think of the day of the Lord as just this great blessing for them, but it was also judgment for God's enemies. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes this, and it's, it's really not what we normally think of when we think of Jesus coming back. But he says, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. The day of the Lord is a great day of deliverance for God's people. But it's a day of wrath and destruction and judgment for those who reject God and especially for those who persecute his people. But that's what we have to do is we have to trust that God will deal with it. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to make sure everybody knows you're right. In fact, just the opposite. Romans 12 Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't avenge ourselves. We never do. We let God deal with it. We see this all throughout. David was chased by Saul. Time and time again, Saul was going to kill him. When David had the opportunity to kill Saul, did he do it? No. He said, I'm not going to do that. God's going to take care of him and I'll wait for God. We see Stephen do the same, the martyr in Acts chapter seven. He's, he's being stoned to death. In the moment, while he's being stoned, he says, Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. Can you imagine that? We don't like to be mistreated. We certainly don't like people even calling us names, let alone physically harming us. And if somebody was killing you, could you imagine saying, Father, don't hold this against them. But who else do we see do that? Jesus. He's being nailed to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't even understand what they're doing. When you can entrust yourself to the Father and know that he's gonna let justice be done, You can be free to forgive. You can be free to let your anger go. You can be free to let thoughts of vengeance go, of justification, of revenge. You can let it all go because you know that God will take care of it. If they repent and turn to God, you should rejoice that he forgives them. We should all long for that, first and foremost, that anybody mistreating us would repent and be forgiven. But if they don't, if they continue in their hard-heartedness against God, justice will be done and you don't have to do it. In fact, Jesus makes this point uh, very clear in his life and Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Think about that one, okay? You want God's grace in your life? Suffer for not doing anything wrong. No real amens for that one. (laughs) It's the word of God, people. This is his word to us. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God if you're doing good and suffer for it. For to this you've been called. You ever want to know what God called you to in life? Suffering unjustly. Nobody likes to claim that promise of scripture. Nobody likes to say, well, that's my calling in life. (laughs) But this is our calling in life. It says, to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You want to be more like Jesus? See, we think of things like, I want to be more like Jesus and heal the sick. Right? I want to be more like Jesus and set the captives free. Why don't we think I want to be more like Jesus and suffer when I didn't do anything wrong? That's what he left an example for us to do, to endure suffering well. Says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You know what being reviled means? Like slanderously talked about, people call you names, they say demeaning, hateful, hurtful things to you. And you know what he did? He didn't do it back. When people called him names, he didn't call them names back. When people said evil things about him, he didn't say evil things back. He didn't do that. Says when he suffered, he didn't threaten them. He didn't say, you touch me again, I'm gonna beat you. He didn't say that was your last warning before I really come unglued. He didn't threaten people. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what we do. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Really, that's the way we, that's what Obadiah is saying to us. God's got this. You don't have to take care of it. We don't take up arms and fight against those that are persecuting us. You know, when we talk about prepping for the end, You don't prep for the end by stocking up weapons and ammo and figuring out how we're gonna form a militia to stop those that are gonna try to shut the church down. We don't do that. You don't see that in scripture. You know how we prepare for that? We commit ourselves more fully to Jesus and prepare to suffer and to endure and remain faithful in the midst of it. We prepare by strengthening our resolve and our commitment to Jesus that no matter what we have to endure, we will not turn our backs on him. We will never abandon our King. We will never renounce him as our Lord. We're his and we'll stay close to him no matter what. That's how we take care of business when we're mistreated. But knowing that frees you to do it. It frees you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, Jesus told us to do that. And you know Jesus wasn't joking when he said that. It was not hyperbole. It wasn't exaggeration. He was being serious. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Really, we should do that. We have a hard enough time loving people who are of a different political persuasion than us. Seriously. Think about the animosity over American politics that means zero for the kingdom in the grand scheme of things and look at the animosity with which believers respond to one another over something so stupid as politics of a nation that will not be here on the new earth. There will be one king and his kingdom and it won't be the United States. we, We are so misled when we get so worked up and we view people as enemies. And even if they are our enemies, we should love them. And that doesn't mean, well, I love them, but I just don't like anything they do or say. No, that's, we all know that's not real. Love them. Pray for those that persecute you. And that, that includes the whole spectrum of persecution that we may or may not face. But if you know that God is gonna deal with it, you can be free to do that because you don't have the obligation to deal with it yourself. You can let it go. So if vengeance is not for you, what is for you? Besides just patiently enduring evil and unjust suffering and rejoicing in it, you can know that restoration is for you. You remember Joel talked about this. He said God would restore the years the locust has eaten Everything that's damaged, God can make it grow back. He can restore it, he can renew it, and he will do that for you. That's another reason you can accept these things because he's gonna make it right. And not just by punishing them if they don't repent, but by restoring to you what's been lost and what's been stolen, what's been taken. God is so, so good. As we read through Obadiah, the last portion of Obadiah was about the restoration of Judah. You know, it was warning Edom, but the judgment that was coming because they did it. But God said, you know, I'm still gonna restore my people that you destroyed because nobody has the final word on God's people besides God. Nobody has the final word on you as one of God's people in covenant relationship with him, but him, nobody does besides him. And his final word is that he will restore what's happened. Whether it's in this life or the next, we don't have any guarantees, right? Sometimes he will, he will absolutely bless us and, and fix everything that's been wronged in this life. Sometimes we will die as we're being persecuted and suffering unjustly, but we'll be rewarded in the next life. And that doesn't cheapen it. That doesn't make it less of a thing. I mean, seriously, you're gonna receive a crown of life and be with Jesus for all of eternity, Who cares what happens here? I mean, when you're mistreated, it doesn't matter. That's what Paul said at one point. He said, the suffering we do, it's not worth comparing to what it's gonna be in the life to come. And that also frees you to accept some bad things. I'm gonna read one more thing from the New Testament here. I told you, there's a lot of Obadiah's message in the scriptures. Even though he's not quoted, it's all through it. Hebrews chapter 10. Make a note of this. Write this reference down and read it a few more times because this is another one of those where we have a bad view of suffering, kind of things that we need to get a better view of suffering. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 20 or 32. Verse 32. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, what he's talking about is the believers that he was writing to, uh, when they first committed their lives to Jesus, they were persecuted, actually physically persecuted. You had a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and this is the kicker. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Right? That's what it actually says. <laughs> joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Imagine we get to the place that we're being persecuted for being Christians. And, and some people show up and, and they start breaking in your house and they, they steal all your stuff and leave you with an empty house and busted windows and this mob runs away, and you're sitting there, what are you thinking? Okay, they were joyfully accepting that circumstance. Joyfully, not bitterly, not grudgingly, not saying, God, I have joy, but I am mad right now. No, they weren't, they were joyfully accepting it. Real joy, why? since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What, they can't take eternity from us. All they can take is our stuff that we can't take with us anyway. None of it's going to go. Everything that we've gained as a reward from Christ is there waiting for us, and nobody can touch it. That's why Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't do anything about it. All this stuff is gonna wear away. It's gonna rot. It's gonna wear out. And if you have it all when you die, somebody else is gonna get to use it. Won't be yours anymore. Just know that that's coming. And that's a real reason to accept hardship because if we lose all of our stuff, who cares? Think about this circumstance because this is really what this is picturing. Imagine you have a very wealthy uncle who's about to die and leave everything to you. We're talking millions. You can fill in the number, however many millions you you wanna fantasize about. But you know, I mean, within a very short amount of time, he's on his deathbed, he's dying, it's the end of the road, you're about to get millions of dollars. Somebody mugs you on the street and steals a hundred bucks out of your wallet. Do you even care? What's $100 when you're about to get a few million? It's irrelevant. It's insignificant. It doesn't make a difference. You, I mean, they could start the thing, you wait, just here, have it all. Why, why take 100, just have it all? I don't care. Do you know how much money I'm about to get? That's what this is like. Who cares if people take our stuff? Do you know what you're gonna get? I mean, what you're on the verge of receiving in Christ as a reward for a faithful life is beyond comparison. Absolutely beyond comparison. And that's what Obadiah is telling the people of Judah. Look, I know Edom just laid you waste with Babylon, but God's going to fix it. He's going to deal with them, so you don't have to worry about that. And he's gonna restore what they did and make everything right and bless you beyond your imagination. That's no guarantee that it will be in this life. We're not gonna go down that trail and think that God is obligated to bless us materially, but he's promised to bless us. It may be here in this life, it may be in the next, but either way we can have confidence that God will take care of it. And that's what we have to do. We've gotta change our mindset right? This all, It starts in the mind. We've got to get our mind wrapped around what God has said and believe it. And let that influence the way we, the way we act, the way we think about other things. It's a change in mind. You know, Jesus said to love God with all your mind. It, we, we should be thinking people. Christians should be the best thinkers in the world. Really. I mean, God is for thinking. He's for using reason and logic and rationality and understanding. I mean, he even talks to some of the people in the prophets and says, come, let us reason together. Let's sit down and talk through this thing. He wants to make sure we understand it. As we get our minds wrapped around this well, then we can endure being unjustly treated because we know God will take care of it. So to wrap this up, we've got to trust that God will avenge the assaults on his followers, including you. You know, you can personalize this, this is for you. As one of the people in covenant relationship with God, he will take care of you. And that's from any attack. Whether we ever face physical persecution in this country or not, who knows? There are some places it happens. There are still, you know, every now and then you hear of a church shooting, something like that. It happens. But not on a very wide scale. Other countries around the world, they're going through it now. They have been for thousands of years. We may face it, we may not. Maybe it's just the political stuff. There are a lot of political attacks on the church, sure. When we get the opportunity to vote, vote. We live in a country we can do that. But you know what? No matter what they do, taking prayer out of schools, legalizing abortion, whatever you want to say that you have a gripe about, God's going to deal with it. It's okay. We may never see these laws overturned in our lifetime. It's okay. God's going to deal with it. Every injustice will be made right. Whether that's through his mercy and forgiveness because they've repented, and we should rejoice at that because he forgave us too. Or in his judgment because they've remained hard against him. But one way or another, God wins. Every wrong is made right, no matter what it is. And we can be at peace with that. Don't take matters into your own hands. It's not for you to do. And something else you can learn from Edom in Obadiah's writings is their wisdom did them no good because God can confound human wisdom. Their military might they trusted in, they lived in this strong, rocky area that was very naturally defensible. They thought no one would ever get in there. You can't trust in your own might, won't work. You can't trust in your allies. Their allies turned on them just like they did to other people. The only person we need to trust for our vengeance and deliverance and justice is God and God alone. That is what Obadiah is saying to us. That is how this can instruct us and encourage us and give us hope. Isn't that a lot of good stuff from a really small book that didn't say anything directly to you? That's a beautiful thing. The way the Word of God works. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decatur, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.